Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. caregiver, you're already familiar with the importance of taking care of your mental health as part of a whole person approach to healing. But there are so many options out there and many either feel impersonal or are inaccessible due to exclusionary pricing and long wait times. When you're living with complex conditions, you need to streamline your care as much as possible too. And with mood health, you can do just that. With personally designed plans starting at just $45, appropriately vetted practitioners, and a concierge who takes you every step of the way, Mood is a simple, affordable, and convenient solution with therapy, psychiatry, and medication management all in one place. Mood's amazing clinicians actually care about you, and long-term relationships are prioritized over quick fixes. Go to moodhealth.com and use code INVISIBLE10 for $10 off your first session. You can thank me later. A note that this episode was recorded in early 2021, and since then, Dr. Crittenden has graduated with her doctorate in medicine and become a pediatric resident. We want to take a moment to congratulate her for her hard work and determination in continuing to advocate for patients around the country, and thank her again for sharing her time with us during this recording. Additionally, and as a content warning, this episode includes brief mention of gun violence for sensitive groups. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Happy holidays. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Faith Crittenden, Master of Public Health and very nearly Dr. Crittenden. Faith yep. is, <laughs> hello. <laughs> Faith is the host of Coloring Health Policy and the Black Professional Student Experience. She was also instrumental in the movement that really pushed the AMA to declare racism as a public health crisis, which is really the crux of the conversation today. There's so much to talk about. Um, and Faith, thank you so much for joining us. We're so happy to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm excited and I'm just ready to answer any questions. So throw them my way. Let's do All it. right, let's do this. <laughs> well, I, I was wondering if we could start off, um, if you could talk to us about your background and work in the field of public health yeah. and what made you want to get involved in that career? Um, it all started um, basically my second year of medical school. Um, I had a family member pass away from gun violence. And um, it was something that was at that time very triggering for me. And I was like, I'm 25. I'm experiencing this. But I know that there's kids out there who are experiencing this at age like 9, 10, 11. And my um, cousin who passed away from gun violence, he left a daughter at that time who was 10 years old. And like in my mind, I was just like, how do you explain a 10-year-old, you know, that your father's not there anymore? And it kind of just motivated me to say like, well, I know she's not the only one experiencing this. I know this is pretty common. Like what policies or what 
uh, what is the pathway to for a kid to deal with this? And it kind of led me to joining the AMA, figuring out more about trauma-informed services, and then also then writing a resolution at that time on increasing trauma-informed services within community schools that did get passed, did get recognized by the AMA. And basically because of our pandemic and what's going on with kids now, I'm pretty sure it's being used as a huge policy and being pushed forward in our government to make sure that we have those trauma-informed programs going on. So That is amazing. I, I love that you know, this all started, I mean, I don't love that it started the way it started, that you got involved in this work, but I do love that your response has been to tackle trauma from the inside out um, and and serve other people um, in the community in doing that work. Because so much of what's going to lead us into, you know, the further part of this discussion is actually based in trauma, of course. Absolutely. And, um, and for those who are also tuning in and we've mentioned the AMA a couple times, but if it weren't clear already, it's the American Medical Association. Um, they're kind of a big deal. Um, <laughs> and, um, I, I mean, it's really interesting because I'm also finding in the work that I do, as I'm sure you are now as well, that the more that we're talking openly about mental health and trauma experience, Absolutely. the more that it's being discussed as a basis for not only chronic health conditions, but chronic mental health conditions and so many experiences that we're unpacking from the perspective of trauma. And it's been such a useful perspective to have in these conversations, hasn't it? Absolutely. No, I I 100% agree. And I think this pandemic is really showing us how much we lack in our government system and our healthcare system when it comes to mental health. And it's, it's just very sad. It's sad to see it, that we don't have the um, facilities that we need to really deal with it head on. And I think because of the outcome of the pandemic and kids haven't been in school, families are now dealing with each other in a more closed environment that we're going to be having to invest more in our mental health going forward. Like it just has to happen. Couldn't agree more. And I love that this is a huge part of the conversation because so much of what we talk about on this show is also about, you know, you get diagnosed with some kind of physical condition, the likelihood of you also having a mental health condition is very high. But as you're saying to us and and reflecting on COVID, it's also this idea that we're in a collective trauma together. Absolutely. We need to be dealing with that head on. Absolutely. So you were instrumental in in getting the AMA to declare racism as a public Mm -hmm. health crisis. And I can't tell you how big my claps and dances were the day that that news was released. I I saw you, uh, you know, throwing it out there on Twitter, all over social media. It was so exciting. And I'm wondering, what does this declaration mean for the future of race relations and and healthcare in America? How do you see that playing out? So when we passed, when we thought about passing this policy, like I wasn't just myself, but it was like a whole um, amount of medical students and as well as some residents and attendings who really felt like it was just important that it was time for the AMA to, to talk about racism in a very um, open way. Um, just to give you background, um, the Policy Digest, which is like this huge book of all the policies that the AMA supports, um, out of thousands and thousands of policies, only two of them mention the word race or racism, which wow. is crazy. Um, yeah, that's... Talk about trauma. And they have been for, yeah, like since the 1840s. So to say that they have nothing on racism since then has was boggling to us in our mind. Yeah. Um, so when we initially like put out the policy, we were just saying we wanted to 
first of all, recognize the amount of work that a lot of people of color have done when it comes to race and in healthcare and really acknowledge their work. Um, that was one of our big focus was like, there's so many physicians, PhDs out there and so many other people who have contributed to the work of addressing racism in healthcare that we need to acknowledge their work, like their work has value and worth. So that was our main reason. The second reason is the AMA has a voice at the table at, and when it comes to healthcare. You know, anytime a president is elected, anytime someone, you know, in government is elected, they go to the AMA for the blessing of how to handle healthcare in our country. And for AMA to not have a voice on what to say about racism, I think was just crazy. So we knew those two big things that we needed the AMA, such a big organization to have a voice. And we needed to recognize the people who've been doing this work for decades when it comes to racism in healthcare to be valued and to be heard. So that was like, we were not thinking that we were doing anything historic. We were just like, we want to value these people. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until we passed it, like literally the minute that it passed, we we're like, oh my God, like we just did something crazy historic. <laughs> it, was never, it was never about ma- making history. It was never about that. But when we realized that we made history, that's when we were just like, oh, wow, this is, this is real now. And we realize that, you know, this policy doesn't mean that racism ends. We realize this we're not in a post-racial society. Things are still going yeah. to happen. But we now know with this policy, it's a foundational piece that from here on out, we can then use that this um, foundational policy to then build on it and then address things that people don't see as um, racism or structural racism and say like, no, when we link it back to our foundational policy, recognize that racism is a public health threat it can be seen in these ways. And that's the one thing that we were just so proud of that we now have a foundational base and now we can build on that. That's amazing. Was it hard to get this passed? Like, did it require a lot of, <laughs> you know, citing studies and oh. I mean, how, how hard did you have to work to prove this to the powers that be who I imagine are largely white males? <laughs> so even so when we first passed it, we had to pass it through the medical student section. And even in the medical student section, we needed like 50 plus references of where racism has been a threat mm. to people's health, even yeah. to prove it to even medical students. And these are just people who are not even in the medical profession yet to basically explain to them like, no, this is the issue that we have to address. And even the medical students in our section, um, they were very scared. They're like, you, are you sure you want to call it racism in, in, in medicine? I was like, we have to. We're not being good physicians or physician in training if we don't recognize what our patients are going through. You know, like everyone has an experience in medicine and some of them are not positive. And if we're not addressing how they're experiencing medicine, are we really providing good health care? And we're not. So mm-hmm. even at the medical student section, when we finally got it passed there, we were just ecstatic. We're like, okay, maybe this will be the end of it. Maybe we only have it in the medical students policy section, which is fine. We're okay with that. But um, my other counterpart, the co-author, Rohan um, Kazanchi, he was like, no, we're going to bring it to the HOD, which is the House of Delegates. That's the main body, the heart of the AMA. And I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm a little nervous, but <laughs> he's like, no, we can do this. And I just want to give people context. This was way before the pandemic. This is way before we had, um, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I you was know, wondering we were about working that. on this mm. for years um, on end. Like um, this is not, has nothing to do with the times. The times kind of just benefit us and what we were trying to get done. Um, so we were going in knowing that people did not want to talk about racism. And we we're like, okay, you know, we could be risking our medical careers and haven't even started it yet, <laughs> bringing this topic, but we we knew that it was important. Um, so when everything happened with the pandemic and with, you know, racial injustice, and it kind of just worked in our favor 
for us to bring this policy forward and saying like, no, like this needs to be heard. And I think that definitely turned the minds and the hearts of the people in the um, House of Delegates, as you mentioned, most of the people there are old white men. <laughs> surprise, a large surprise. majority of them are. Um, not everyone, but a good amount of them are. And it's like, how do we get them who may have never really had to deal with racism, never had to deal with um, sexism or any other the isms um, to really understand why this plays a role in the patients that they see and treat every single day. Um, luckily, we had a big coalition at that time of residents and attendings and physicians who said, like, no, this is an issue. We have to address it. And if we didn't have that coalition and those voices in the room, I don't think it would have gotten passed. And, and that's what wow. made this policy work. I mean, that's kind of scary, though, the idea that there's a world in which this might not have been passed, even well, though. And, and, and as you mentioned, like putting your own medical career at risk, really speaking truth. Yeah. Um, and that's, that to me sounds traumatic in and of itself. You know, what was the emotional journey like for you as, as a future physician and as someone who is deep in this research, you know, your stats and your, your figures and your facts, and, um, you know, the people that you're dealing with to be facing leadership that so easily could have misconstrued the information, um, and also facing a, a, a society that is in denial in large part of what this public health crisis is. I mean, what is that emotional journey like for you as a black physician? Um, it's one that's an everyday process. Um, I know that, you know, being a black woman in medicine, there's only two point like four percent of us or two point six, because there's two point percent of black men in medicine. So I know that, you know, I'm gonna eventually know all the female black physicians in medicine. I, yeah. I know that the journey that um I will experience will be very different than my colleagues. But at the end of the day, it goes back to what type of physician do I want to be? You know, when I go see patients and I head home and I go to sleep, like I want to know that I was able to address all their needs in full, you know, and that requires me to address the racial issues that they're dealing with that require me to like really address the trauma. I mean, and and it's going to make my colleagues feel uncomfortable, but if we are truly saying that we care for every single human being in America, we need to make sure that we're addressing every issue that they deal with. And it sounds like this is as much about um, racism uh, and bias among patient treatment, like, you know, in, among patient populations, as it is among those who are opting to pursue medical degrees, right? You know, when we Absolutely. look at the the numbers of people who are practicing physicians in this country and and what those racial disparities are looking like. So are you hoping that a movement like this, because it really is a movement, Mm -hmm. Um, are you hoping that there is also a response and that there are, there will be more people of color who step up to train as physicians now as well? Absolutely. That was honestly the main reason why we wanted to publicize the policy, you know, um, the history of the AMA, if most people don't know it, um, they were the main organization that used to ban black physicians, black physicians could not be members of the AMA for over close to a hundred years. It wasn't until 2008 where the AMA came to the um, National Medical Association's conference. And the National Medical Association was created in response to the AMA not allowing Black physicians to be a part of them. Um, So the AMA, um, NMA represents all Black physicians in America. Um, They came to them, they apologized for not allowing Black physicians to be in there. With the hope that um, the AMA not only just apologize to Black physicians, but with this policy that we're now engaging them more. We're saying, hey, 
we know that the AMA has a racist um, history. It's it's without question. We're, but now we're at the point where we're wanting to address it, acknowledge it, sit in it, and then also to move forward. Because a lot of things, when you have to apologize for the racist things that we've seen in society, it's not just saying, oh, let's get to the healing part. You have to acknowledge what you've done. You have to like sit in there and acknowledge it. And that's one thing I can say about the AMA has done so far, which is great, is that they're acknowledging it. They're saying, okay, we know that this member was doing it. This president was doing it. They're openly saying like he was racist. Here how he was racist. Here is how we're saying we're going to move forward from his racist policies and his practices in order to bring people back to medicine. And that's hard for a lot of people to hear because as you know, like when you're a big organization and you've been around for hundreds of years, you have been on the wrong side of history for a lot of the time. And it causes you to really sit down and really examine how has your policy or your participation in like really racist policy really affected the healthcare of our nation. And that's hard to do. That's very Mm -hmm. hard to do. So for them to want to swallow their pride and really release a statement like this and saying that we're not just only releasing a statement, but we're putting our money where our mouth is by really saying that we want medical education to be better. We really want to increase the pipeline. We really want to educate our physician members to understand like racist practices and racist race-based medicine has had a huge effect on our patients. It's transformative. Yeah. Really wonderful. So what's been the response among communities of color as well? I mean, especially like the NMA, has the NMA also accepted this declaration and, and sort of welcomed the AMA into, uh, into the fold as it were, or, um, you know, has there been I backlash? Think, honestly, since the um, apology, I think the relations has been a lot better. Um, one thing we can honestly say is that our past president, um, Dr. Patrice Harris um, is a member of the NMA. Um, and has been very active in trying to build that relationship with the NMA better and also, there are some members who are AMA members who were also part of the NMA. Um, there's a past president of the NMA who is, was leading our women's section in the AMA. So I can say that it's definitely gotten better. Um, there's definitely people there who want to make sure that on both sides that we're addressing, you know, the health of Black people as well as the health of all Americans. And that's mm-hmm. why we're here. This is what medicine's call for. Isn't that just such a wonderful representation of the microcosm, if you will. Absolutely. You know, if we if we looked at the larger systems of government and oppression that exist in this country, gee, an apology goes a long way, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. It's food Absolutely. for thought for some of the powers that be. So what are the next steps for anyone who's tuning into this episode and maybe a layperson and not necessarily involved in policy or in healthcare? What can your average person do to take action on this issue and really continue the fight? I think um, one way we can continue the fight is to recognize it within your own communities. Um, there has been um, cities across our country that have declared racism as a public health threat in their area. And they've gone to their um, local people, their leaders and said like, hey, we know this is an issue in our area. How can we address it? How can we make sure that um, the policies that you're passing that affect our local people are the right ones. And I think it's just making your voice heard. I think one example is, I think it's Pittsburgh had really looked at how um, racism was affecting their black community and the outcome and the health outcomes. And they really said, okay, now we need to create policies and we need to implement these policies in ways to help our black community. And you don't have to be someone famous. You don't have to be someone with a loud voice, just care about your community more and how it affects your neighbors. And I think that's one way as a lay person, you can definitely do that. Do you have any suggestions for how the public can get involved in these healthcare change initiatives, like aside from sort of 
you know, acknowledging and, and observing what's going on in their communities? Is it about getting involved in local community organizations? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Get involved in your local community organizations. Um, inspire more kids to go into medicine. Um, that's one thing that is we're struggling with is getting more kids interested in medicine. I know they talk about the Fauci effect and how Dr. Fauci has really increased the medical applications, but of who, of who, I don't think he's really inspiring, you know, people of color to go into medicine, even though you need only look at those COVID numbers (laughs) to know who's being inspired right now. Right. Absolutely. Um, but give back, um, go to your local schools, talk to kids about medicine, why it's important to be a physician, not only a physician, but just a healthcare provider. Cause you know, being a physician assistant is important. Being a nurse is really important. I mean, anyone in medicine, just getting involved and caring for another being is another way you can get involved in care. I think that's really beautifully said. The healthcare system is hard enough to navigate without having chronic illness diagnoses to boot. Feeling all at sea and looking for direction, advice, and deeper understanding? From a medical specialty glossary to tips on talking to your health insurance providers, download your free copy of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. So I'm wondering if I can sort of put the spotlight on you a little bit more. And (laughs) I'd love to find out your experience in the healthcare system as someone who is in training as a physician, um, but particularly as it regards self-identity. So you're a woman of color walking Mm -hmm. into any physician's office. Have you experienced any undue prejudice or privilege because of the way you look? And can you see your circumstances have having been different if you presented differently, if you were white, male, trans, any, anything other than the way that you present? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, I feel like, I feel like when I went to my OBGYN one time, I've, I've, um, I'm I'm very um, transparent. I am on Medicaid because of being over 26 and I'm in medical school. I, we don't have insurance where you can like just, you know, private insurance. So I am on, am on Medicaid. And I think when people see me in, uh, initially, they don't think that I'm a medical student. And I'm not one to present myself as one. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out the vibe and see how they're going to just treat me as a human being. And I can say that Certain certain situations, you know, I feel like I know when I'm getting good medical care because I've been on the other side of it and I know when I'm getting less medical care. Um, and, and that's just the honest truth. Um, and I'm, I'm quick to correct them like, no, that's not how you're supposed to do that. And then they'll figure out that I, I'm not just, you know, another black body in the room. I know what the treatment I should be giving, what I should not be getting. So, yeah, I mean, having that knowledge, but so many black patients do have that knowledge, too. This is the thing yeah, is that, absolutely. you know the more of us who are either dealing with chronic illness or dealing with any kind of systemic mm-hmm. oppression, um, you know, you become more educated so that when you walk in the room, you have more power. I mean, that's kind of the only way to make that happen. Right. And this presumption that you walk in as, as a black woman, you know, and you are met with a certain kind of judgment that's especially because you are on the front lines of changing that narrative. That's got to be something that's frustrating that you're still, I mean, the fact that it took until 2020 for us to even have this conversation on such a wide scale, that's got to be frustrating, huh? I mean, I agree. But the way that I look at it is that sometimes it, it takes time for change to really happen. And if we really want true change, like we can get to the point where we're like, okay, we want to just apologize for everything so we can move on. And that's like the behavior of a lot of people in medicine. Like, let's just apologize for our racist history. Let's not deal with it and sit in, sit in it and like actually acknowledge it because that's too much to deal with. 
Hmm. Um, but if you're really trying to really get real change to be done, you have to time, you have to work with time. And that requires us addressing it, acknowledging it, and actually um, then forgiving for it and having those healing circles. And it sucks sometimes. I mean, I was shocked that we were the first people and it took us to 2020 to basically pass something like this. And it's, it's still hurtful um, that in some aspects that it took this long, that it took someone who's, you know, knows the history of, you know, Black people in medicine to come along and be the ones to do this. Even though I know that many Black physicians have contributed so much to the real, to the um, research of trying to push that racism is, is a big factor in our health disparities that we're seeing today. So. Mm, absolutely. So in, in what ways do you see our healthcare system? I mean, you mentioned that you're on Medicaid, right? So, um, which I really appreciate your transparency about that because so many of us deal with these concerns about engaging with the healthcare system and on what level we're able to do that. And I'm wondering from your experience and the experiences of others that you've sort of collected as part of this research, um, in what way is the healthcare system working for patients, if at all? And aside from racism, yeah. In what other ways is it falling short and requiring improvement? I think that it's working in terms of the fact that the ACA was just a humongous policy to be passed. And a lot of people don't understand what was ever passed with the ACA because it was such a huge transformative policy. The only other policy that has really been transformative in our nation's history is the act of Medicare and Medicaid ever. Um, and by wow. each policy has been led or happened because of a black man standing in the way. And most people don't know that. Um, Dr. McCobb is, you know, the main one who got Medicare, Medicaid passed. We would not have that without wow. Dr. McCobb. And obviously, you know, President Obama was the main one that got the ACA passed. Um, so that just says right there who really values our health care here. Mm. Um, but when it comes to you know, outside of like um, racism, what are ways that we are falling short? Um, definitely in the areas of sexism, definitely in the areas of trans LGBT health, um, we are definitely falling short in and just recognizing, you know, the healthcare needs that they really need. I think we the first report that I've ever seen for LGBT health came out within four or five years from now past. And that just says a lot of how we're not really taking care of their health. But I'm luck, I'm glad that I'm now running into a lot of activists um, at the level of the AMA, like Glamas there. Um, they're very active seeing mm. um, more physicians who are coming out a part of that community and really advocating for those patients is, is just amazing. Mm. It's great. And I love it as well as we're also falling short with Native American health. Um, we don't even talk yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. We're falling very short with their health. And that's because they have a whole nother healthcare system, which is the Indian Health Services, that does not get the funding, does not get the attention that it needs, which is just as big as Medicare and Medicaid when, when we think about it at large. And it's, it's, that's where we definitely need to work on. What's the larger message there about colonialism when it comes to what we're learning about, you know, what we what we know about racism in, in public health, but also, as you're mentioning, you know, the indigenous healthcare system and the ways in which indigenous populations have been pushed onto reservations. I mean, what does that say about America? It says that we are still learning. <laughs> it says that we have a history that we have not really addressed, even though people, and that gets back to my point again, like everyone wants to race to just healing. Everyone just wants to race to us just being one. 
And you can't be one without a dealing with everyone's trauma. You know, we are a melting pot of a lot of people who are just planted here. And we were saying like, hey, let's get together and like move on and work to create a better America. But a better America can't happen unless we really talk about what brought us here and got us here together. And it sounds like an expansion of empathy there, really. Oh, absolutely. And and that's one thing that we are lacking a lot is how how can mm-hmm. I put myself in someone else's shoes and really understand their story? And that's one thing I think that we are definitely, I'm definitely trying to do in healthcare is like saying, what is someone's story when I see a patient? Can I put myself in their shoes? Can I really sit down and understand where they are coming from? Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And having that sensitivity to the context in which people are, are approaching you for care. Yeah. So it sounds like the work of a doctor is not just in treating disease or preventing disease. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. That's Mm -hmm. that, you know, you're just so focused on the science and the aspect of medicine. Cause if you're really truly doing medicine, medicine's an art and an art that is so subjective at times. And so based on emotion and feeling and really understanding your patients, even though some people that come into medicine are very technical and want to be objective. I don't think as a person of color, you can ever be objective because, mm-hmm. you know, your life is political, whatever you do is political and you don't have a really say in it at the end of the day. Right. You have to engage with the system as it is designed Absolutely. in many ways. Yeah. So with that in mind, what are some tips? I'd love for you to share your top three tips for people of color, um, uh, for the BIPOC community engaging with the U.S. healthcare system. What would you recommend to really walk in and and maximize the output when it comes to your care? I would, ooh, top three tips. You can give more if you want. (laughs) No, 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 no. It's okay. I'm thinking. But, um... I would say embrace um, people of color as your physicians, if you can, or someone who is a part of, you know, a different sexual orientation, because they'll understand Mm -hmm. your struggle better than someone who doesn't. And that's just the reality of it. Because most people don't realize, you know, the racism and the sexism and all the isms that you experience in real life, just because I put on a white coat does not mean that I don't experience that. I experienced that still. Um, Great example is Dr. Moore out in Indiana who passed away from COVID and she filmed herself, you know, being treated um, poorly by the physician who was caring for her, even though she was a physician herself. Hmm. She's like, I'm still being treated differently, even though I know the medical knowledge, I know all of this, like I'm still being treated poorly. And she then subsequent, you know, passed away from COVID. And that just tells, you know, right there, like, doesn't matter what you're wearing, doesn't matter what position you have, you know, a person of color is a person of color. So I would tell like a patient, like definitely try if you can have a, a, a person of color as your physician because they get you. Um, secondly, I say be more knowledgeable about the, you know, the healthcare field. Understand that you can self-advocate. You don't have to just, you know, tell, take whatever physician tells you. You know, it's a it's a back and forth conversation. And a person of color or someone who's a physician will totally understand that. And they'll totally be willing to negotiate with you and understand things. That doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to neglect medical knowledge and evidence-based research at the end of the day, but we're willing to sit down and try to, you know, get to a common ground to make sure that your voice is heard. Mm. And then thirdly, I would probably say um, definitely um, understand. I think one thing that we lose, especially as a person of color, as someone's LGBT is that we don't understand how our healthcare system works when it comes to medical insurance. 
And because a lot of us have jobs where we don't have health insurance attached to them. So we're coming in, we're trying to navigate this healthcare system, and we don't have the basic resources that our counterparts are starting off with. They're starting off with jobs that have, you know, insurance already attached to them. So they're getting more resources and more access to things that we would never get. So I think one thing that, which is sad that it's another minority tax to add, Mm -hmm. um, but understanding how our healthcare system works, because until we get a public option, hopefully, or until we embrace the idea of Medicare for all, you know, it's still going to be the same system and navigating that is super important to making sure you get the healthcare that you need. Where can people learn about that? I mean, is it about following people who are um, touting evidence-based, you know, science and, and research on social media? Is it about going on government websites? Like if you don't really understand how it works, what are the best resources? Cause I mean, it's, it's almost like our healthcare system needs a user manual and that's, that's a barrier to care, isn't it? You know, And this is something that comes up a lot on the show is that like these frustrations with also the sicker you get, the more hoops you have to jump through when you have even more limited energy. So what do you recommend for people to um, really learn more about the healthcare system so that they can take advantage of the services that are at their disposal? Yeah, I think definitely learning, learning more about how our, the history of our healthcare system was set up will definitely explain to you why we're seeing the things that we're seeing. Um, I I would say the hard part is definitely um, understanding the ACA and how it works because most people, even physicians, some physicians don't even understand how it works because the way that it was rolled out, um, which was done purposefully, but backfired at the same time. Um, I think definitely trying to reach out to um, the health exchange and like really sit down with those people. You know, the ones that just call you and say like, Hey, get healthcare. Like, no, can you explain to me what's going on? Like, what, what am I signing up for? What do you mean when you say premiums or reimbursements and all those terms that, you know, even most doctors don't even know, (laughs) you know, like what are premiums? So what are copays? Like explain it to me as you were talking to a five-year-old and that's okay to say. You know, like if mm. someone is explaining to you your disease or explaining to you an illness that you're dealing with and are explaining to you at a level of like a college professor, that's not fair to you. Um, that's not OK. And that's not good medicine. Everyone should be able to talk to somebody as they're a fifth grader or a fourth grader in a class in a way that's easy and understandable. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes that's also about when you do sign on to a policy, like I know they send many, many pages of documents, but sometimes it is about pouring through those documents with a fine tooth comb, isn't it? Like you kind of have to learn to speak legalese, which is not the easiest thing in the world, but (laughs) if you can read it in detail or even ask a friend to sit down and read it with you so that you are very clear on what you have access to and maybe have more barriers to when it comes to your available healthcare, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering what your ask is for listeners today as well. What can they do to support you and your professional community in your ongoing work? I think um, one thing you can support is just requiring more. Don't accept that. And and I actually just published an article on this on going beyond declarative medicine, which is basically saying going beyond having an organization make statements, going beyond them just saying like, oh, you know, Black Lives Matter or like um, racism is a public health threat. What are they actually doing? Hold, continue to hold people's feet to the fire. 
and continues to say like, okay, what are, you know, what are, you said this in 2020, but what are you doing in 2021? What are, you know, your um, tangibles? What are you, you showing us that you're taking this racism issue as serious and really hold mm-hmm. people to that because it's, it's fine. We can always make statements. We can always say, you know, that this is an issue and then walk away from it, but it'll still be an issue until people actually do something about it. So what's next for you in your advocacy journey and in your training journey? I mean, you're about to graduate from medical school. I know. Ah. <laughs> so we're very excited to have you joining the ranks of, of wonderful Black female physicians here in the U.S. So what will you be practicing? What is next in terms of your work with the AMA? Tell us all about it. Yeah. Um, so the next big policy that I love, um, and I've been not only going to do this in the AMA, but I'm working on it in the AAP as well, is just addressing um, natural natural hair discrimination and cultural headwear in medicine. Um, <laughs> one thing, as you can see, I'm, I wear my hair naturally. Um, yeah. And for some people, it scares a lot of people to go into medicine because they feel like their hair or, you know, they can't wear their turbans or her jobs um, would limit them to be a physician. And that's just incorrect. Um, then we need patients to feel that they, they that they can see themselves within the physicians that are treating them and just combating that ideology that you have to have a certain like Eurocentric um, professionalism is definitely something that we're seeing across the nation. I know that my state, Connecticut, like two days ago, just recognized that natural um, natural hair discrimination is an issue and they banned it. You know, so we're the eighth state to do this. I'm hoping that medical, um, you know, the medical world will be the biggest, you know, system to come out and say, like, we're no longer going to do this so that every, you know, medical student trainee attending feels comfortable wearing their hair or their cultural headwear um, as they see fit. And it's not going to be um, determining how they practice medicine in the future. And also when we're talking about the AAP or the American Academy of Pediatrics, looking at how children are affected when it comes to natural hair discrimination and cultural headwear. I mean, there's so many news reports of kids who um, have been suspended from school um, because they have dreadlocks or um, if they're Native American, they had their ponytail cut off, which is crazy, ridiculous, Mm. things like that. So this is just not like, you know, a black issue. No, this is an issue for many children across our nation. And how does that affect them and their outlook on life if we don't address it now? Yeah, absolutely. And and so are you going to be practicing in Connecticut? Do you know what your practice is going to look I like? I have no idea. Match <laughs> <laughs> day is um in two weeks. So oh, I wow. where I am in two weeks and I'm super excited. Either way, I know I'm going to do pediatrics and I'm excited Beautiful. to enter that profession. Oh, that's so wonderful that you'll be treating kids and sort of really giving that kind of care from the ground up where it (laughs) really starts. Yeah. I'm so excited for you. Is there anything else that you would like to share for people who are tuning into this episode? Um, you know, no, I think we covered everything. This I know. Is- <laughs> <laughs> we covered a lot. I'm I'm so grateful for your your time and your energy today yeah, and, no, and for awesome. all the work you do. I mean I, I don't know how you do it. Like you're <laughs> about to be embarking in this pediatrics career and you have two podcasts. It's just (laughs) pretty incredible. I struggle just to do the one. I am bowled over by your, your talent and your commitment to this work and um, truly, truly honored to have had you on the show today. And we'll certainly link to not only your work and and the article that you mentioned, um, but to a lot of the policies that we've also been discussing. And we are hoping for more change in the future. I mean, you can't have a conversation about 
chronic invisible illness, which we do on this show without also talking about the barriers to treatment. Um, And I'm so grateful that there are people like you out there doing the work um, and showing the rest of us how to lead as well. So thank you. Awesome. No, thank you for letting me come on. So absolute pleasure. All right. Faith Crittenden, soon to be Dr. Crittenden. uh, We thank you very much. (laughs) That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.